early on in my research on why the Psalms are called the prayer book of the church and sometimes the song book of the church, I was intrigued to come across the idea that praying the Psalms is a subversive act. To subvert is to undermine and overturn the power and authority of an established system or institution. And this immediately made sense to me. If you're at all familiar with the Christian story, you know that at the beginning, everything that God created was good and that human beings created in God's image were declared very good. Adam and Eve lived in harmony with God, with each other, with themselves, and with all of creation. But after sin entered the world, things changed. Everything fell out of tune. There's discord everywhere, in every arena. Now, we all experience lives that are filled with discord. Our relationship with God is frequently fraught with doubt or even suspicion. Humankind is in discord with nature. Um, just this past week, flash floods killed dozens of people in my home state of West Virginia. We are violently out of sync with one another. Last weekend on Father's Day, uh, Chicago witnessed its 300th homicide just this year. That's been added to since then. And we are even out of tune with ourselves. If you've ever made a commitment you earnestly long to keep and then broken it and failed to keep it, you know what I'm talking about. The current establishment of this world runs always toward painful discord. Sometimes it's muffled and inobtrusive. Sometimes the discord in our lives swells to a loud cacophony, but it's always present. In the face of all this discord, what does something as simple as praying a psalm do? How can praying the word of God be a subversive act? Well, one thing that all of scripture does, not just the psalms, is to realign or reorient us to the reality of the goodness of God. An early church father, Athanasius, spoke of God holding the world like a lyre, which is a type of harp, and joining the strings of things in the air to those on earth, and the strings of the things in heaven to those, on earth to those in the air, bringing each part into harmony with the whole. He wrote, by his decree and will, Jesus regulates them all, to produce the beauty and harmony of a single, well-ordered universe. While remaining unchanged with his Father, he moves all of creation by his unchanging nature according to the Father's will. To everything, he gives existence and life in accordance with its nature, and so creates a wonderful and truly divine harmony. Scripture reveals to us the framework of the universe, the original framework, which was designed to reflect the love and the goodness and the harmony existing between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then can tighten the strings in us that are too loose, and he can loosen the strings in us that are wound too tightly. He alone has the power to restore harmony to the universe and then bring us into harmony with it. Because this is such a profound process, Christians don't merely hear and listen to the scriptures, so that's good. We also pray and sing the scripture. We breathe in the truth 
and we breathe it back out with the movement of our diaphragm and the vibration of our vocal cords, and we are changed in this process. And so the Psalms are the prayer book of the church. And the Psalms are the songbook of the church. So we're going to look at Psalm 19 this morning. I want you to think of it like a tuning fork. A tuning fork, I don't know if you've seen one, is a really simple metal object that produces an unusually pure pitch, a single, clear, true note. And when you strike it, I think some musicians strike it on their leg, um, it becomes a guide and it's a standard by which an instrument can be tuned and every instrument in the orchestra can be tuned to it. If every instrument is in tune with the perfect pitch of that tuning fork, the music is all played in the same key. If instruments, or even one instrument, is out of key, you get discord. So when the psalmist plucks a note in the psalms, we can see and observe the reactions of our own hearts and minds. The degree to which the vibrations from the psalms set off sympathetic vibrations of joy, or otherwise, in us, can tell us how far in tune or out of tune we are. We learn where we are wound too tight and where we are too slack and loose. In Psalm 19, there are roughly three sections, and in the first, we're going to be alerted to the music of the spheres, an unheard chorus of praise to God that is going around, uh, around us all the time. In the second, we hear news about the laws of the Lord that can enlarge our capacity to receive the blessing of those laws with great joy. And in the final section, we hear the intimate pleas of the psalm writer as he responds to the God he has met in creation and in the law. This response, the response of the writer, singer, prayer of Psalm 19, both reveals and deepens the joy and trust he finds in his relationship with God. So we'll start at the very beginning, a very fine place to start. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. When these first strings of Psalm 19 are plucked, we find ourselves resounding, or not, with what creation has to say about reality. Specifically, we find here that the heavens and the skies have something to say. And it's not just that they have something to say, but they're actually saying it right now, all the time. As in every day, all day, every night, all night long, day to day and night to night, the sky and the heavens are calling back and forth to each other, declaring, proclaiming, and revealing the glory of God all the time, all around us. And the psalm says that what they say resounds throughout the whole universe. Think of it. If this psalm is reliable, and I think it is, our whole galaxy is throbbing with sound all the time. And not just random noises, but a sort of speech without words. Something like music, that the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the heavens are singing all the time. In the words of one of my favorite hymns, 
All nature sings, and around us rings the music of the spheres. This concept, music of the spheres, planets making music, was articulated 2,500 years ago by a pagan Greek philosopher and mathematician named Pythagoras. He proposed that the sun and moon and planets all genuinely emit their own unique hum based on their orbits, the spheres, and that the quality of life on Earth reflects the tenor of celestial sounds, which are imperceptible to the human ear. Interesting, Pythagoras himself and this kind of cult that was built around him afterwards were associated with the worship of Apollo, the sun god. And this highlights another amazing thing about the power of God's word. It has the capacity to correctly tune us to reality, whether we are tuned too high or too low. In understanding the essence of the sun, moon, and stars, our modern culture, we just see dust and energy. Um, and the idea that skies and heavens are actively declaring anything, much less the glory of God, is nonsense. We tend to denigrate creation to nothing more than the material it's made from. We're kind of pitched too low. In ancient cultures, on the other hand, people were inclined to worship creation. They were pitched too high. Um, in the book of Job, Job says, in defense of himself, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would have been an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Avoiding both errors, Psalm 19 calibrates us to participate in harmony with creation and to understand the creator not only as glorious, but as a provider and a joy sharer. Let's read the next lines as he's picking up midway through verse 4. In them, in the skies, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun, personified here as a bridegroom and then as an athlete, has been provided a tent by his maker, and he strides out every morning full of joy, sharing the glory of God and sharing in the glory of God. The race course set before him is the entire expanse of the heavens, and all earth is laid bare beneath him. So by praying or singing the opening verses of Psalm 19, we are integrated into the awareness that we were created to be in harmony with nature, created by and provided for the same God. St. Francis of Assisi was an Italian monk who lived about a thousand years ago. He likened the stars, sun, and planets, and the moons to our brothers and sisters, seeing as we share the same father. He referred to them as brother sun and sister moon, and he recognized that we, planets and people alike, share in the glory of God whenever we proclaim the glory of God in our lives. This reality is enhanced when we join the music of the spheres and sing this song. Moving on in Psalm 19, we find the focus shifting from the joy expressed through creation to the joy expressed through the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Can you hear the joy of the psalmist? His joy hasn't lessened with this shift, but this is where I feel things begin to get a little more challenging. (laughs) Two things change as we move our attention from God's creation to God's law. The glory of the Lord is still present, but it becomes, number one, more specific and personal, and two, more demanding. Laws, commands, precepts, they require something of us. All of a sudden, the transitional line referring to the sun, nothing is hidden from its heat. feels like now it might refer to the uncomfortable heat, the eyes of the Lord. They start to sweat a little, like maybe we'd be a little more comfortable. We could, some things could be hept, kept hidden. We could maybe pull a nice big fig leaf between us and the sun of holiness. But in any relationship, if we're going to enjoy true intimacy, things are going to get specific. They're going to get personal. In this second section, even the name for God has changed. In verse 1, we use the more generic word for God. But twice in each verse of this section, we hear the more intimate, personal, specific name, Yahweh, translated Lord. So... It's one thing to recognize that there's something godlike in the heavens, in the glory of the heavens, and it's quite another to enter into relationship with a particular specific someone who you are now willing to call Lord. A Lord implies a servant, a follower, someone who recognizes himself or herself as properly being on the receiving end of commands. Now, before we go further, let's unpack some of the words used for the law. The psalmist doesn't repeat any of them, and taken all together, they point both to the broad, comprehensive meaning of Torah and the individual instructions within it. Torah, often translated as law, is a stand-in for the entirety of God's revealed will and his personal covenant relationship to his people. Then words like precepts and commandment have more to do with precise authoritative directives for human behavior. Testimony speaks of truth that God himself attests to. He gives testimony to this. And decrees are judicial decisions about the various situations we find ourselves in. Fear is the reverent response that the Lord's people have to the Lord's word. When the psalmist strikes a joyful note with these words, Do our souls match that same joyful pitch? Or are souls out of harmony? I don't know about you, but when I'm confronted with a list of words like law, command, testimony, decree, fear, I don't usually experience a burst of joy. (laughs) In verse 8, the psalm states, the commands of the Lord enlighten our eyes. And one commentator pointed out this refers to the ways our eyes light up when we see someone we love. Um, I'm more likely to get kind of shifty-eyed when I hear (laughs) commands and law. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, if there's something I want to do, 
I'm going to find a way to do it. You don't need to command me to do it. You don't need to tell me to do it. So almost by definition then, laws and commands to me represent stuff I don't want to do. Something that is opposed to my wishes and desires. Something that is out of tune with who I am and what I want. And honestly, I don't think I'm particularly unique in this way. So why then do we find that the psalmist goes on and on about the beauty of the precepts and the testimony and the laws of the Lord? What does he know deep in his guts that we don't know? Just looking at the language that he uses to describe the law of the Lord gives us one clue. It's alternately described as perfect, sure, right, clean, true, and pure. In other words, the law and the laws of the Lord are completely and categorically different than the laws we humans make for ourselves. Who among us would describe our country's legal system, for example, as being perfect, sure, right, clean, true, and pure? And sadly, ours is better than some other places. And quite apart from the literal human law, there are all these unwritten, unspoken expectations that we fallen human beings are placing on each other all the time. Uh, you can remember rules that your parents have, or if your parent rules that you have for your children, the way that your friends react to you when you do something that they would rather you not do. Um, these days, in particular, social judgment is ruthless and inescapable. I think of the social expectations various people on my Facebook feed voice following the tragedy of the Orlando nightclub shooting. If you use that occasion to call for changes that need to happen, you got scolded. If you offered thoughts and prayers, you got scolded. If you didn't post anything, you got scolded. <laughs> Every conceivable reaction to things and to this national tragedy gets you in trouble with somebody. Somebody has an expectation that you are failing to meet. If we try to use the laws and expectations and social demands of this world as a tuning fork for our souls, we would live in chronic discord. In other words, we human beings bring a lot of very human baggage with us when we approach God as Lord. Every human law, every social or familial expectation that we've encountered is flawed to one degree or another, and so we react to the perfect laws of the Lord as if they were just more of the same. Some of us respond to this by trying to avoid any laws or expectation coming from outside ourselves. Um, in fact, for many people, a main goal of life is to consult, try really hard to consult only our most authentic wishes and desires and values. And we attempt to live out a life of integrity by disregarding as much as possible any competing claims from God or society or family. Using ourselves as the standard, we try to locate within ourselves a code of living that is pure and clean and true. We attempt, if we narrow the field just to ourselves, maybe we can live an authentic, pure life. It's a very seductive idea, um, very American, very bold. 
If I just do the hard work of identifying what I really want and I go for it and I don't let anyone stop me and get in the way, maybe I can live a life that is true to my authentic self. But sadly, even this relatively modest goal is completely beyond reach, isn't it? Or am I the only one whose deepest desires are often in conflict with each other? I don't know about you, but I find that I'm in conflict with myself pretty much on a daily basis, usually because my deeply held, authentic, short-term desires are in violent conflict with my deeply held, authentic, long-term desires. Um, many days, my most authentic self at 7 a.m. wants to have Pop-Tarts and Diet Coke for breakfast. <laughs> By 10 o'clock, my deepest, most authentic self doesn't want to feel like crap. It's funny because it's true. If I want to keep my sexual options open and I want a stable family life, I want to make a meaningful contribution to the world through my work, and I want to sleep in till noon. I want to be generous and live simply, and I want to collect lots and lots of stuff. I cannot reconcile these desires simply by consulting my own wishes or figuring out which of myself is the most authentic at any given moment, unless I look outside myself to understand good and bad and right and wrong. I am incapable of living in harmony even with just myself. There is something really interesting buried here in verse 10 that we can look at. Speaking of the law, this is in verse 10, the psalmist goes on to say, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Look at that word desired. Scholars say that the Hebrew word used for desire in this text is found only in a couple of places in the Old Testament. One is somewhere in Proverbs. The other is in the second and third chapters of Genesis where it speaks of the desire that Adam and Eve felt for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the desire that led to the very first act of disobedience and discord, the desire that led to a decisive move to reject the perfect and beautiful law of love, the law which then, once broken, we were subjected to all these various competing imperfect laws the desire to attempt to rewrite good and evil on our own terms. And that act was the first of every dull, flat, dissonant note of discord that followed. Separated now from ourselves, separated from one another, separated from creation, separated from God, we die. But here... In Psalm 19, the psalmist finds a new desire, a good, right, pure desire, a desire for the person of God as described through the law. It's been restored to him. And the law of God, once perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus, leads us to life. It resolves the brokenness within our own souls it reconciles us to the whole human race. It restores us to the created universe. It reconnects us into the love present in the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
we can, through the Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus, cease to regard the law as a hateful burden and start to see it as a blessed gift that can guide us into closer intimacy with our God, with our Lord, and with the world around us, the people in the new universe. Proverbs 27.6 tells us that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The wounds that we feel from the law of the Lord are from our friend, Jesus. Note well what the psalmist is saying about the law and what he's not saying about it. He never claims that keeping the law comes easily or that it does not involve self-denial or sacrifice. Notably, he doesn't comment on whether or not he's even able to keep the law. There's no explicit exhortation here for us to do better or to be better. What he does is to faithfully acknowledge the beauty of the law, the wisdom of the law, the desirability of the law, and the practical aid that the law provides. Whether or not we can keep the law perfectly, it is perfect. Even where the law calls us to die to our old nature or old desires, it brings life. It does this because of the one who lived out that law perfectly in a way that we never can. And there is power in confessing this reality through prayer and through song. The psalmist loves the law of the Lord because it is perfect and it revives his soul. He loves the testimony of the Lord because it is sure and it makes the simple wise. He loves the precepts of the law because they are right and they bring joy to his heart. He loves the commandment of the Lord because it is pure and it enlightens the eyes. In verse 11, he is grateful and appreciative of the life-preserving warnings that the law provides, and he's happy to note that wherever we do keep the commandments of the Lord, the rewards are great. Brothers and sisters, just because the purity and righteousness the laws of the Lord bring to the fore the fact that we ourselves are not pure, not right. We are in no way cut off from rejoicing in the law. Let's look further on in this psalm here for guidance on how to pray and what to sing in response to the revelation of the Lord through his commands. Listen to these final verses. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I love this. Our initial gut reaction to hearing the law of the Lord, our initial authentic response, may be genuine fear or even genuine loathing and repulsion. Um, It is all too easy to look at the expectations of a holy God and respond to them either with abject despair or hopelessness or self-loathing or with grim, desperate, determined legalism. But we don't have to go there. And we don't have to stay there if that's where we find ourselves today. 
it's actually possible to respond with joy and faith, particularly as we continue to mature in the Lord. Because ultimately, the only way to relate in a life-giving way to the laws, commands, and expectations of a holy God is through relationship with his holy son. Now, the psalmist lived long before Jesus was born, but by God's grace, he was given the gift of faith to respond to the law with a posture of great vulnerability and deep trust. He identifies and claims his Lord as his rock and his redeemer, and he boldly asks for what he does not have on his own. He does not shrink away in fear or shame. He doesn't try to fix the discord himself by powering up and white-knuckling into law-keeping. Instead, having acknowledged the life-giving nature of the Lord's law, he offers up a prayer, a song, asking the Lord to free him from sin, asking the Lord to make him acceptable. Whenever the Lord comes to you and speaks to you of his laws, whether it is with a gentle reminder or with a hearty exhortation or even with a stern rebuke, if you have a relationship of trust with him based on the life and death of the only human being who ever kept the perfect law perfectly, consider this option. Imagine yourself outside on a glorious June day in Chicago, laying in a clean, green patch of grass under a brilliant blue sky, maybe resting your head on your arms. Temperature, unlike today, is just perfect. Not too hot, not too cold, a cool breeze coming in from the lake. And still, you start to become aware of the heat of the sun up there in the sky, charting his course through the heavens, and you start to feel the heat beating down on your whole body, and you feel the reality of the fact that nothing can remain hidden from the holy eyes of God. Start to sweat. <laughs> you think for just a minute about getting up and moving inside to the nearest temperature-controlled building. But because you have found Jesus to be your rock, and your redeemer, instead, you find yourself rolling over onto your back like a cat in a sunbeam, stretching out your arms and legs and feeling the rays of the Lord's glory soaking into your body with its life-giving, life-transforming warmth. Everything nasty or sticky or scaly or dark that clings to you anything dank that's been growing inside you like a mold, you simply offer up to the cleansing antiseptic rays of God's Son. You can feel the sin sickness leaving you and feel spiritual vitamin D seeping into your skin as you invite the Lord to make you blameless, innocent, acceptable. Let him Tighten the cords within you that are too loose and slack. Let him loosen the ones that are wound too tightly. Those strings of our hearts and our minds and our wills, just as he needs to. Let him tune your deepest desires to be in alignment with his. Life in Christ can be like this. 
Confession, repentance, and obedience are not natural to us in this fallen state. I don't expect in this lifetime to reach a point where the law of the Lord never pinches or chafes or turns me off. But I do know that when we regularly rejoice in the goodness of God and the goodness of the laws that express his character, he uses our prayers and our songs to overthrow the hostile powers of this world. He uses that to bring us into harmony with himself, with ourselves, with our neighbors, with creation. When Jesus stretched out his arms on the hardwood of the cross, the sinews and tendons of his muscles pulled taut while he hung there. In that moment, when our Redeemer offered himself as a perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true sacrifice, acceptable in the eyes of his Father, he became the pitch-perfect tuning fork for the whole world. God used the broken body of Jesus, now resounding with joy, to restring the whole universe. According to the book of Hebrews, our rock and redeemer dared to ensure the shame and pain of submitting himself to death. He did it for the joy set before him. He did it for joy, and he did it for us. And now, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.